We're in Acts chapter 8 this morning. So I just want to encourage you with this. Are you guys excited to dig into the scriptures today? Yeah, me too. Me too, right? I love digging into God's word. Um, If you got your Bible this morning, just hold it up, all right? Hold it up where you are. Some of you holding up your your phone. That's cool. I hear you. (laughs) You know, scroll open, if you will, to Acts chapter 8. But hold that Bible up for a second. Look. Jesus said this, and I was reminded of this as we were praying this morning. Uh, He said, your word is truth and you sanctify us by the truth. So here's what we know. You can put it down. Here's what we know is that this book, this word, the scripture, the holy scripture is the truth of God. And God intends to sanctify or to transform us today through his word. So I'm excited to dig in and, and to teach, study through uh, the book of Acts together in chapter 8 specifically. Let's just be, go ahead and begin right out with the reading of God's Word. So will you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. And just to remind you as you find your place there and standing, um, Stephen has been martyred. And a great persecution has broken out against the church. The church has been scattered from Jerusalem throughout the surrounding regions. And they've gone preaching the gospel. And as they've scattered, they've been preaching and they've seen some pretty radical things happen. And so we pick up now. Uh, Philip has been preaching in, in Samaria. And uh, we, what we talked about last week is that... Um, Through the persecution, it scattered the gospel, which brought joy to the people. So we have the joy of the gospel of Jesus being brought to the peoples. And now we pick up in verse 9 of Acts chapter 8. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness 
and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Father, thank you for your word today. And we ask that. Holy Spirit, you would guide us through this text. Lord, show us the truth and cleanse us by it. May Jesus be glorified and your church edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. All right, so on the heels of Stephen's murder, uh, the church has scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. They scattered, but they didn't scatter scared. They scattered preaching the gospel. This preaching of the gospel brought joy to the peoples. We talked about that last time. And as we zoom in on Philip, we see that Philip was a man who was appointed as a deacon in Acts chapter 6. You know, they had a, a need. Some of the, the uh, widows were not having their needs met. And so they found some men. They raised them up and appointed them as servants, as lead servants. Philip was one of those men. The Bible says he was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And he was appointed as a, as a servant. But now two chapters later, he's a... He's a deacon who's called up out of the shadows and he's just serving and helping people. And in Acts chapter eight, we see that he's actually preaching the gospel and evangelizing people, even working miracles in the name of Jesus. This guy came out of the shadows to lead a great revival. I love that. And Philip, he's preaching Christ, calling people to repent and believe that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been looking for. That Jesus is the one who can forgive sin and make people right with God. Well, the gospel message is being validated by powerful miracles. We, we read last time how Stephen is casting out demons. He's healing the paralyzed and the lame. These miracles are happening and great joy has come to this city. But where we begin our scripture today in verse 9, it begins with but... We need to see that word in contrast with joy. We have a guy who is looking for satisfaction, as we read in our psalm today. He's looking for joy, looking for satisfaction. The Bible says that great joy was in the city. And then the very next word is, but there was a man named Simon. He's on a search for joy. He thinks he can find joy in uh, keeping the people amazed at him. But it's not there. Simon was a sorcerer. History remembers Simon by the name Simon Magus. Uh, and that means Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer. He practiced magic and had previously captured the attention of the people. They were even, uh, you know, he was talking about how great he was. And the Samaritans also were like, this guy is the power of God. The one called great that they were acclaiming to his greatness as well. Simon had their attention, he had their affection, and he thought, this is where it's at. But it was never enough. Then when Philip comes on the scene and begins preaching the gospel, the people were no longer really that amazed with Simon. They were more amazed with the work of God in redeeming a people. Rescuing, redeeming, and working mighty miracles. So Simon actually, the Bible says that Simon actually believes and is baptized also. 
He too was amazed by the miracles that Philip was doing. As we look at this text, what I want to do is teach today. I want to do some teaching. This text is full of a lot of really great theology, great material for us. And I want to do some teaching first, and then we'll, we'll finish up with uh, hopefully some really good application principles. But what we see is two major parts to this passage. I want to look at them kind of separately at first. So the first part, part one, if you will, is this. The Samaritans, the Spirit, and the mission. If you're taking notes, that's uh, number one on the, on the list there. We're looking at the Samaritans, the Spirit, and the mission. So news reached back to Jerusalem, to the apostles in Jerusalem, that many of the Samaritans were believing and were being baptized. This is pretty significant. I don't think we catch it right offhand, so we're going to spend a few minutes with it. The, the Jerusalem church sends Peter and John... To Samaria to check it out. We have to ask why. What we see in this scripture is that Jesus is working strategically in this moment. Remember last time we we looked at persecution, a great persecution, and we, we sought to answer the question, what is God doing? And I want us to come with a similar approach to right here in this text, we see Samaritans are coming to faith in Jesus. They're being baptized. And then all of a sudden, um, the two top tier leaders from the church in Jerusalem are sent to Samaria to check it out. What's going on? Why did the, the mega church, remember there are thousands now, the mega church in Jerusalem, why did they feel the need to send in the big guns? <laughs> I mean, these are the, the top leaders of the church in Jerusalem, Peter and John, right? Men who had walked closely with Jesus for years. They'd seen Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah on either side. Peter and John, they watched Jesus die on the cross. And then at the news of his resurrection, these are the two men who raced to the tomb, right? This is Peter and John. These are the guys who uh, Peter preached at Pentecost. The spirit fell and thousands came to faith in Christ. These are the guys who, as they walked into the, 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 the city to pray, they go to the temple and at the gate called Beautiful, they come across a lame man and they, uh, Peter says, um, in the name of Jesus, be healed. Right. They heal a lame man. They preach again. More thousands are saved. These are the men who are arrested and told you can no longer do this in the name of Jesus. And they stand boldly in the face of opposition and say, we must obey God rather than men. That's these leaders. These are patriarchs. They're founders of the faith. These are the guys on on which the church is being built. Ephesians 2.20 says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It's these men that God is building his church on them. So why? We must ask, why is Jesus sending these top tier leaders from Jerusalem to Samaria to follow up on an evangelistic ministry of Philip? Well, Peter and John are sent to observe with their own eyes and to validate that these Samaritans had genuinely become believers, that they were genuinely putting their faith in Jesus Christ That they were being baptized in his name. And when they get there, they discover they've not yet received the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this is really interesting. And we'll dig into that in just a moment. But these apostles, they lay their hands on these believing Samaritans. They pray over them and miraculously the Holy Spirit comes on them much like he did at Pentecost. This is a massive moment. And I want to look at it together through the lens of what Peter and John might be learning. They've been sent on a mission, and I believe it's the mission of God to teach these apostles what God is doing. So what might Peter and John be learning? I want to look at three things. Here's what they are learning as apostles. The first thing they're learning is the good news of Jesus is for Samaritans. The good news of Jesus is for Samaritans. Now, up until this point, Christianity has largely been a Jewish religion. But now it is obvious that these Samaritans have truly come to faith in Jesus. They've been baptized into the body of Christ. Do you remember in John chapter four when Jesus told his disciples that they must go through Samaria? And it was there in John 4 that he met with a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well. And they had this long conversation about water and then about her husbands. And then uh, it got really serious when she said, there's coming a day when the Messiah will come and he'll tell us all things. And Jesus revealed himself as the Christ first to this woman at a well A Samaritan woman. And Jesus says, the Messiah you're looking for, that's me. This is a massive moment in John chapter 4. But one one clue we get in verse 9 about the kind of prejudice that exists between Jews and Samaritans. The Bible says in John 4, 9, it says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And here's what's going on in their day. The racial prejudice went both ways. You see, the Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. That was really the only thing they had in common. They hated each other equally. The Jews saw the Samaritans as half-breeds because they were intermarrying Jews with many other kinds of peoples, Gentiles. And the Samaritans looked, looked back on the Jews as, well, they, if they're going to judge us, we don't want anything to do with them. We'll just start our own religion up here. We'll build our own temple on Mount Gerizim instead of on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. We're going to do our own thing. And it became this very divided deal. Samaritans and Jews had peace with one another primarily because they just never interacted. It was like an oath that they swore to one another. We just don't speak to each other. They lived in this false harmony where um, they hate one another, but they don't. They're not enemies just because they never interact. That's why John 4, when Jesus met with the woman at the well, she said, how is it that you, a Jewish man, speak to me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus was crossing over the unwritten social barrier. And right now, these apostles are seeing and putting their hands on a people that they might would have avoided. And what we see is that the good news of Jesus is for Samaritans. Racial prejudice, ethnic prejudice, all of that is entrenched into this moment. And it was all okay with everybody 
until Jesus came. Jesus threw a monkey wrench in that system. And he taught his disciples that the kingdom of God, his kingdom, would be made up of all ethnicities. And it isn't just that we can live at peace separately from one another. We're going to all be one church. So here it is in the book of Acts that Peter and John have to go see for themselves that these half-breed Samaritans are actually believing. And Philip is quite the radical, right? Philip is, he's kind of a rogue disciple. He's gone into this village and he's been preaching and baptizing people that the apostles really haven't affirmed that this is a good plan. But God is teaching them. God is gracious to not only let them observe it, but to have them put their hands on and see the the partaking of the Holy Spirit of God. This is a teaching moment for these apostles and an empowering moment for these Samaritans. The second thing that Peter and John are learning is the same gospel and the same spirit saves and empowers very different people. So these are these are complementary truths, but I want to dig in a little bit deeper. Okay, the same gospel and the same spirit saves very different people. The beauty of the gospel is Jesus. He came to save you, but that's too simple. His mission wasn't just to rescue you from sin. It is to bring you into his family. He came to save you and join you as a kingdom people, a kingdom people who previously had nothing in common. But now they have the mercy of Jesus in common. They have the spirit of Christ in common and they have the mercy of Jesus in common. Uh, One of our scriptures we go we've been going to a lot lately. I want us to look at it again right now is first Peter two, nine and ten. If you have your Bible, please go there. I'd love for you to underline this in the in the scripture. But if you you don't look, look with me at the screen, the the word says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What we see is a unifying factor. The gospel of Jesus takes people who need mercy and other people who are very different, ethnically very different, all these things very different. They also need mercy. And Peter and John are able to look and go, wow, they need the same grace and same mercy that we need. And Jesus gave it to us and he's giving it to them. It's the same gospel, the same gospel of mercy. And it's unifying. The scripture says once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you didn't have mercy, but now you have God's mercy. I want us to look at another text in Ephesians 2. This one's a little bit longer, but I want us to read it together. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 12. Ephesians 2, 12 uh, Three twenty-one. I want you to look at what the what the Bible teaches. If you have again God's Word, I encourage you to turn. Ephesians two twelve. It says this: Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's writing to Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that beautiful? Where there was hostility, there's now hospitality. Where there was animosity, there's now affection. Where there was prejudice, there's now partnership. Where there was hate, there's now hope. This is what the gospel does. It takes people who are very different and brings them together into one family, one household. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. Uh, A little side point right here. Uh, about what's going on with the spirit. Um, It's an unavoidable thing in this text. What we see is people who have genuinely come to faith in Christ. They are baptized and yet they still don't have the Holy Spirit. So probably in your mind, there's a big question mark. What's going on there? What? How is this happening? So a little side point in pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit I want us to remember the book of Acts is a historical narrative book. It's mainly written to tell us the events that happened and to show us what Jesus was continuing to do and to teach through his church. It records about 30 years of time as the church is just beginning and as God's people make the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. Including this great new reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So go with me for a moment. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God kept himself at a distance from the people. Do you remember Moses going to meet with God in the tent of meeting? Only he was allowed to go and meet with God. And he would hear from the Lord. He'd come back and he would tell the people, the Lord says to you. There was this separation, a distance that was required in the old covenant. When Jesus came, everything became new. The Bible says they named him Emmanuel. Anybody know what that name means? God what? With us. All right. So in the old covenant, the Old Testament, we have God is distant. He's here, but he's distant from us. Jesus comes on the scene and we have God with us. But in John 14, 15, 16 and 17, Jesus says, hey, I'm leaving and it's better that I go because if I go, I'm going to send the spirit and he's not just going to be with you. He's going to be in you. 
We have a massive transition that's happening from old covenant to Christ coming to now a new covenant in his blood is being brought in. And we're in a period of transition. So here's what's happening. Um, This book, the book of Acts, is a book of transition. It's not always meant to be seen as what is normative for for Christian life. What is prescriptive for how how things should happen and how things should happen for you. In this passage, for example, some have concluded that there's a moment of salvation. And then later on at some other point, um, believers should be baptized in the Holy Spirit, like a second baptism, so to speak. But the rest of the New Testament doesn't support that idea. If that were the norm, there would have been some teaching in the scriptures like Paul would have written to the church and to the pastors to tell them, hey, be sure that you lay hands on people so that they receive the Holy Spirit. There would have been a lot of explanation about this process. And why? Well, because the Holy Spirit is essential to Christian living. To live obediently to Christ, we must have the spirit of God to empower it. To live on mission for Jesus, we must have the Holy Spirit for God to empower and enable it. The Spirit of God is a necessity, right? He's not just a a commodity. He's necessity. But the rest of the New Testament, and we could go through many scriptures, but I'll just use two, teaches that we are sealed. Upon conversion, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13, 14. It also teaches that anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Christ. Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. So here's the reality. If someone says, well, I belong to Jesus, but I don't yet have the Spirit. As Paul writes to the Romans, he's telling them that anyone who doesn't have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. So there can't be this time frame between salvation and receiving of the Spirit. So that takes us back to our text, because our text seems to indicate it's possible. And that's the reason why we have to look at this passage, this book of Acts as not prescriptive, but instructional. It's not necessarily telling us how it's going to happen, but how it did happen in these moments. So the question then is still, why does it happen like that? And here's what I would say. Peter and John are being allowed to experience this moment with these Samaritans so that they will let go of all their prejudices. This is huge, y'all. This is the principles that we need to hold on to. This is so that they let go of their prejudices, so that, they, uh, so that there won't be a Jewish church and a Samaritan church. No, one church. It's so that the gospel will be taken to all the nations, that there will be no people on the planet that we say, "Mm, not them. Peter and John are allowed to experience this moment, which is unique. You don't see it in in the rest of scriptures This is a unique moment. And I believe that God is discipling his leading apostles to take the mission outside their flock. And to welcome others into the fold. What else is God teaching his apostles? Thirdly, he's teaching them the mission that Jesus gave. It's bearing fruit. The mission Jesus gave in Acts 1.8. When he said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That mission is 
bearing fruit. Peter and John are affirmed. They're encouraged by what they find, what they see, that Jesus is enabling what he commanded. In fact, as they leave this city and head back to Jerusalem, they go back preaching the gospel to other Samaritan villages. In verse 25, it's obvious they learned a lot from their experience with these Samaritans and with Philip. They learned that these Samaritans need Jesus and we're going to be the ones to take it to them. So that's part one. That's the first part is the gospel going to the Samaritans. The second part uh, I want to talk about is this Simon the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer, and to him what we have in this text is a sharp rebuke, a sharp rebuke and a merciful gospel. When Simon sees the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of these apostles' hands, he offers them money and he tries to buy that power, the ability to do that. Well, this moment exposes him and Peter gives him a very hard rebuke. We're going to look at that in detail. But then he gives him a merciful gospel invitation. So let's look at both. Here's the rebuke. Let me summarize. In fact, I'd like for you, if you're taking notes, write this down. Peter says to him, you don't really want Jesus. You just want Jesus You just want what Jesus can offer. You don't really want Jesus. You just want what Jesus can offer. You see, Simon saw Jesus as a means to some other end. He didn't see Jesus as the end and the means. He just saw him as his ticket to get what he really wanted. So let's walk through what uh, Peter says to Simon specifically. The first thing Peter says to him, if if you're looking at the text in verse uh, 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is a very strong statement. And here's what he says. Money can't buy the gifts of God. Money will buy almost anything. Right. In this world, if you have enough money, you can do almost anything, but it cannot buy you favor with God. Money cannot buy you favor with God. Just a a quick sidebar here. There are lots of preachers on television, by the way, who will tell you otherwise. Um, Hey, if you'll send in a thousand dollars, God's going to give you something back. Right. Let me tell you, God is not our genie in a lamp. That if you rub it hard enough, you get what you want back. And um, those who will tell you that the more money you put in the basket or the more money you did da, da 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 they're using this Simon's logic. You cannot buy favor with God. These apostles, if you remember back in Acts 3, they were asked for money. That's what the lame beggar said. Um, do you have any money? And Simon, uh, Peter and John look at him and say, silver and gold, we, we don't have. But what we do have, our real treasure we'll give to you. And here they're not asked for money. They're offered money. And in exchange for the, the power to impart the Holy Spirit. Peter tells Simon literally. Now, this is the literal from the Greek. 
translation. Here's what he says, and it's very harsh. It's not slang. It's just literally what he says. You and your money can go to hell. That's the literal translation of the Greek, and he meant it. He meant it as a warning. He was saying to him, you and all of your stuff, you're on your way to damnation. This is pretty scary, but he meant this as a warning. Church, listen, money is the currency of this life. It is worthless in the next. All the gold bars that you could collect here is just asphalt there. It's not worth anything. It's worthless in the next life. Whether you had a lot or a little here, it will not matter there. Jesus taught us with the woman who had the two little mites and she put them in the basket and Jesus praised her generosity that she had given more than anyone. And everyone's like, what in the world? And he's teaching us there that with all that you have, whether it be a lot or a little, treasure Jesus above it all. What we see in Simon is that he doesn't treasure Jesus. He just treasures what Jesus could give him. And so Peter looks at him secondly and says, you have no part in this. You have no part of this. So I take that to mean Simon is on the outside of this whole exchange. This whole exchange of the spirit of God coming on his people. Peter is saying, you don't have anything to do with this. He's telling him, based on what I see in this moment, you have no part with God. It seems that Simon is observing the holy, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but he's not experiencing it himself. And upon seeing this miraculous sign of God, he still doesn't want God. Do do you see that in the text? He's seen God come in power and he still doesn't want God. He just wants the power of God. There's a very big difference. There are a lot of people today. Church, listen. And a lot of people today that are seeking some powerful experience, they don't really care for intimacy with God. This is a great place to do a heart check on ourselves. What do you really want? Is Jesus your method to get what you really want? Is he what you're looking for forward to most about heaven? Or is he just your ticket to get there? We need to heed the warning of this text. There is a very real and subtle deception here. Simon is so close to genuine faith. He's amazed by the miracle working Philip. He's in awe of what God has been doing. He's genuinely Impressed and amazed. He's been continuing with Philip. He's been, he's professed Jesus. He's been baptized. Everything seems so genuine. Everything in Simon's life looked like he's a true disciple. But in this moment, we see that his real love wasn't for the God of power, but for the power of God. This is a subtle deception that can creep into the heart of Christians and non-Christians alike. I want to ask you this question. Do you find God useful or beautiful? 
Do you find God useful or beautiful? You can answer this question with how you pray. When you come to God to pray, do you fall to your knees and open your mouth and say, God, I need the first things that come out of your mouth? Lord, I've tried everything else. I'm going to come to you because you can help. You're useful. Or does your heart genuinely love worship like, God, you're so good. You're so good. I just want to be with you. Probably the best way we could understand this reality would be um, in, in a healthy marriage situation. Um, if I tell my wife I really love her because she does the dishes, how well is that going to go for me? <laughs> I see some ladies shaking heads. No, no, not well, right? It's not going to go well. If I only have interest in my wife for what she does for me, that's not going to be good. If I have genuine interest in loving, intimate relationship and uh, knowing her, that's different. She's going to resonate with that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lift her. It's going to light her on the inside. And the same is true if we only look to God as useful and not beautiful. We need to evaluate and check whether or not we're like Simon here. Peter says to Simon, your your heart is not right with God. Church, ultimately, this is all that matters. Only Jesus can make the heart right with God. These statements from Peter to Simon, they sound sharp and piercing, and it's because they are. The truth cuts deep. In fact, the the word of God in Hebrews 4.12 says that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is like a sword that pierces you, cuts you open, exposes what's got to go. Maybe right now as we read this passage about Simon, you're being struck of the same truth and the word of God is piercing your heart. Don't resist it. God's word isn't a machete and he's not careless with it. God's word is like a scalpel in the hand of a highly skilled surgeon. And God's surgical wounds intend to heal. You need to know this. The road of sin is a dead end. That's the last word that Peter says to Simon. He says, you are poisoned and trapped in your sin. What he's telling him is you are not only helpless, you are hopeless. Those are strong words. Peter sees the surface sin, but he sees deeper. The word of God pierces deeper and he sees the poisonous damage and the deadly grip of darkness on Simon's heart. And Peter's words are truthful and compassionate. So where do we turn next? The second part of what Peter says to him is merciful, the merciful gospel. And here's where I want to kind of wrap things up. Listen in closely, church. I know those seats are comfortable. Lean forward a little bit. Listen in. Peter says to Simon, repent of this wickedness. 
Pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Now let's get this, okay? We have the Samaritan people who are probably the most hated and rejected people among the Jews. We have Jewish, very Jewish Peter who has come to affirm the Holy Spirit coming. And upon coming, he runs into the the chief enemy of the gospel in the middle of the enemy, the, the enemy people, so to speak. So this would be the worst enemy to Peter. So probably the rebuke came really natural. <laughs> you are far from God. You are da, 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 right? That probably came really naturally. But here comes the merciful gospel. Repent. Now we, we think of that word repent and we immediately probably think back to some hellfire brimstone preacher hell, uh, hollering at you to return or burn, you know, repent, repent. But here's what we see is that that word built into it is mercy. We have sinned against a holy God. The fact that repentance is even available is merciful. So Peter says to Simon. Repent and look to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. Here's the tweet sized gospel message here. Your broken and deceived heart can be forgiven And freed in Jesus. Your broken and deceived heart can be set free, can be forgiven and set free. This is not just a change of behavior. It's a change of heart. That's what he's attacking. It's not Peter didn't say in his rebuke, hey, you've done something really bad. No, he says your heart is really bad. Your heart is far from God. So it's not just a change of behavior that we're interested in when it comes to repentance. It's not just, hey, stop doing that, start doing this. That's not repentance. Repentance is a transformation. It's a change of mind and heart. It's like a caterpillar to a butterfly kind of transformation. And it's only worked by God. In Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, this is what the Lord said. This is a beautiful promise. The Lord said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Simon had asked to buy the power of God, but he's. But now he's been offered the free gift of grace and mercy. God cannot be bought. Forgiveness is not for sale. Right standing with God is not for sale. Influence and power in the church is not for sale. It is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the call to repent with the offer of forgiveness is great mercy. Repentance is a gift of grace. It's not just a change of behavior. It's a radical transformation of desire. So I want to call us today, church. Make Christ your supreme delight. I love the scripture and the exhortation from Stephen this morning. There are lots of things in life that 
We could get confused. We could lose our way and think, well, if I just have that, I'll be truly satisfied. That's what happened with Simon. He thought, if I just had that power, wow, look at that. The Holy Spirit coming on people. That's amazing. I want to be able to do that. He thought, if I could just have that, it'll satisfy my soul. But no. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Make Christ your supreme treasure. Simon wanted acceptance and love from people. And he thought Jesus was his ticket to getting it. The only thing that can truly satisfy you is the acceptance and love of God. So look to Christ. Look to Christ. If you're a Christian today. But Jesus is not your supreme treasure. Then as Peter said to Simon. Repent. Check your heart. Is your life really about Jesus or is Jesus just your ticket to something else? If that's you today, then repent. Look to Christ. Or maybe you're not a Christian and you're in this room or you're joining us online and you're listening to this message. If Jesus is not your supreme treasure, then the call is the same to you. Repent. Look to Christ. You've sinned against the holy God and you will never deserve to be forgiven. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. But Jesus came and he paid it all. That is the good news of the gospel is he came to take your sin and give to you his righteousness. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You just look to him in faith and trust his goodness So I call on you today to call out to him. Repentance is a gift. And obedience is the delight of a new heart. Obedience is the delight of a new heart. Quickly, some takeaways. This is finished right here. Listen in. These are are big takeaways from this text. First, God is rescuing a people for himself from every ethnicity. The Samaritans, the most rejected people in the world, God is teaching his apostles that he is embracing them and bringing them into the family. There is not a people group on the planet that are not welcomed in the kingdom of God. So let's join God in his mission of building his kingdom through the gospel. Amen. Amen. Secondly, beware. The enemy. Right. We've been seeing the enemy all through Acts. He comes with overt persecution. He comes through subtle um, uh, hypocrisy and Ananias and Sapphira. He comes back with overt persecution. Anything to stop this movement. He murders Stephen through uh, the working of Saul and, and those persecuting them, thinking he can stomp out the gospel and instead he just spreads the fire of the movement. And now we see the subtle deception of seeing Jesus as your ticket to something else. Jesus will not be your means to some other end. He wants to be your supreme treasure. So beware. Ask yourself, are there ways that I'm using God and not 
truly savoring and treasuring Him. In Matthew 7, there's a great warning that there will be many in the last day who come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, and He's going to say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's about relationship. Do you know God? Or are you just using Him? Beware. And lastly, delight, delight in the Lord. Treasure Him. I love this quote from John Piper. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When my heart wells up with joy because of Jesus, God is glorified. He's glorified. Church, let's delight ourselves in the Lord.